Hello, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. Hi, everyone. I'm Kimberly Davis, and I'm the Fiscal Feminist. I'm also a partner and managing director at the Bonson Group, which is a wealth management firm in Newport Beach, California, and also has offices in New York City. So I'm super excited about today because I'm going to be interviewing this very multifaceted lady who has been a TV actress, so she's experienced fame, <laughs> and um, she's also currently uh, the CEO of a hybrid publisher called Wonderwell, and her name is Maggie Langrick. Am I saying that right? You are, yes. <laughs> Maggie, welcome. Thank you so much. Maggie has driven from Los Angeles down to Orange County to mm -hmm. be with us today, and I really appreciate you making the effort to do that. Um, no, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And so um, she's got an amazing, amazing story that I just want to get right into because she is a super good role model for women uh, who are going to make a lot of pivots in their life and uh, you know, also maybe are experiencing being a single mom. So there's a lot of uh, very interesting topics that we're going to address today. So stay tuned, listen to the whole thing, because you're not going to want to miss one minute of this thing. It's going to be awesome. So you have had a, a very interesting career. <laughs> um, and so I went online to figure out what was going on, because I know you as a publisher, mm -hmm. not as an actress. Um, uh, with full disclosure, Maggie is instrumental in helping me uh, with my book, which I'm currently writing, and just FYI for anyone out there thinking about writing a book, uh, it's hard. <laughs> I was, I'm like, wow, this is a big time commitment. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't quite expecting it to be, you know, because I think I'm such a great writer. And so then I started writing and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be really a big commitment. But Maggie's made it great. And um she has been very instrumental in motivating me to do this and helping me with my vision and setting up the whole logistical aspect of writing a book, which is really quite not as simple as one might think. It's not like you just sit down at your laptop and I mean, maybe you do, but it's really not going to get your book out there to the way, you know, in the way that you might want it to do so. So um, that's how I know Maggie. It's through the publishing connection. But um, let's go back to the beginning and I see that um, you were an actress and mm -hmm. you worked in film and TV. I Googled you. Uh, <laughs> and I saw that you were on some seriously real TV shows. Yeah, there's even a Wikipedia page for me, which is weird because I didn't create it. And I think that there were some inaccuracies in there and I have no idea how to get them <laughs> fixed. But it's sort of like, oh, OK, my, I, I exist on the Internet independent from my own efforts. Weird. <laughs> no, it was awesome because I read the Wikipedia page mm -hmm. and... Um, Anyway, so tell me a little bit about how you decided to get into film and TV acting. Sure. So, Kim, my story, my life story is a story of someone who allowed the winds of fate to blow her around <laughs> and had some pretty, you know, pretty, pretty decent results from that approach to living. Um, I, I actually got into acting when I was uh, too young to be making any kinds of decisions for myself anyway. Um, I was 13 years old when I made my first film. And it was... And was that your decision or your parents' decision? Well, I suppose it was... It was it was mine, but my my decision, uh, but not my idea or initiative. So here's how what happened. I was um, 
we had a we were friendly with a neighbor um, who lived across the street from us, and she was a budding independent filmmaker, and she was planning to make a um, a movie about you know loosely based on her own sort of adolescence, hmm. um, and she said that she was partly inspired to kind of go for it and write that um, write that screenplay through knowing me. I guess I was a precocious, lippy little kid. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't believe it. And somehow, you know, she thought, oh, she reminds me of me. And uh, I think that uh, Margaret, as I was known then, um, would be really great to play me. So she cast me in the leading role. And Um, geographically, where were you living mm, then? I was in Vancouver, Canada. Okay. Yeah. So I was uh, growing up in Vancouver, Canada. I had actually met Sandy Wilson, the the filmmaker, um, when I, I think I was eight or nine when my family moved and across the street from her, but it, I was 13 by the time we actually went to camera and shot the film. Um, that that movie was called My American Cousin, um, and it became a kind of a Western Canadian classic. People, believe it or not, I was, okay, this is a while ago. I am no longer anywhere near 13 years old. Um, I was recognized, I still get recognized in Canada occasionally. I think the last That's time was, awesome. yeah, I was in some sort of like government office applying for some, you know, immigration thing or something. And the person behind the desk, are you the Margaret Langrick? <laughs> I'm going to actually watch this movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) My American cousin, everyone. Yeah, yeah. And and in in fact, the the film won a whole bunch of awards. So we have um, a Canadian kind of version of the Academy Awards. It's called the Genie Awards. Um, And I won the award for Best Actress that year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. So then I, you know, after that, everyone said to me, so it was was kind of like, um, it wasn't really like a decision, something that I went for. It was more an opportunity that I said yes to. And that is really something, you know, that dynamic is something that kind of characterized a lot of my life and career, for better or for worse. Um, I was, you know, have been in reactive mode, I suppose, until, um, I don't know, maybe a a decade or 15 years ago when I decided to take my fate in my own hands a bit more. But at that stage, I was really just about um, saying yes to opportunities. So um, after the film was made and... um, Especially after the award happened, then everyone said to me, you know, like, oh, are you going to keep acting? So what were you, like 15 at this point? Yeah, I think I was 15 or I think I was 14 when the film came out and probably four, you know, 14 when I won the award, too. Still, it was just a year later. Uh, maybe it was 15. Um, anyway, so at the age of 15, um, I did. I, I came down to Hollywood and I made a Universal Pictures film, Harry and the Hendersons, which was a big budget, you know, uh, big budget Hollywood movie shot on the Universal back lot. So at this stage, you have like a an agent mm-hmm. and they're promoting you out yeah. there. So you're a full blown child actor. Yeah. At at that point I was like, really like, okay, this is my thing. I'm Mm -hmm. just going to do this and I'm going to be serious about it. Um, and that, and it worked out, it worked out great for me for, you know, several years. Um, I think I was in the business for about 10 or 11 years or so. Um, and did a, a, a bunch of movies and TV shows before I, um, dropped out to move to England and have a baby. So did, do you feel like the working as an actress during, you know, your teen years, as a younger person, did it influence maybe how you developed in mm. your mind? I mean, because you weren't going the traditional route. I don't know. How did your schooling get affected by this? Um, well, I I sort of worked around school, and um, it's not like I was working all the time flat out. Um, no, I, I would say that it definitely had an influence on the way that I developed as a person and my attitude toward work. Um, so when you're on a film set, 
you know, the, the, you, you, there's no room for messing around or being flaky or unreliable, like none at all. So um, even though I was a young teenager, I was, you know, deadly serious about the responsibilities that I had on set. Um, You know, you have to show up. You cannot be sick. You cannot be in a bad mood. You cannot, you you can't, you can't, you know, if you're freezing cold or, you know, you're hungry. I mean, they make you as comfortable as possible, but you know, there are lots of discomforts and um, lots of, lots of moments where you have to put the production above your own needs or, you know, moods or any of that. So, I just learned at a really young age, just a rock solid work ethic. And I, I know that that carried, I don't know whether that, whether I would have developed or whether that was inherent in me or something that, that was cultivated on the film sets over those, you know, those, through those years. But I know that by the time I went into like, you know, office life and had a different kind of work, um, I, I really brought that with me. So I was always, you know, sort of good foot soldier, eager to please, you know, be humble, show up, do your job. Um, and, and actually, oddly, that has served me also now as an entrepreneur working for myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I don't cut myself any slack and, um, and the work is important and I treat it seriously. So I, I really do credit my, my early days on set to that. Did you have a parent there with you? Um, were you, how were you there kind of at that age doing the work thing by yourself? It's, it's weird. I'm I'm trying to, I'm trying to recall exactly. I did have a parent with me. There are rules about like, you know, you have to have a guardian Mm -hmm. on set. But I think with the first film when I was 13, because the director was a family friend, we sort of made her my de facto guardian. So even though she's like, she had her hands full, but technically she was like looking after me. But what that means is I was pretty independent. And that also is something that has characterized my life. I'm just really, really independent and do my own thing all the time and have been looking out for myself for a long time since a young age but that's good i mean Mm -hmm. that i mean if you can handle that responsibility which i think more people in this world should be going down Mm -hmm. that path um i think we coddle our kids a lot me included Mm -hmm. i'm not giving myself a free pass on that one but um so you didn't have a desire so you're you're now you're getting into your early 20s maybe late you know Mm -hmm. like say 20 ish you were not compelled to just keep trying to be a movie actress or you know get that fame that everyone seems to be searching well, for. Well, I did want it a lot. Yeah, so I I got got round to wanting it. So it fell yeah. into my lap, but then it became something that I pursued intentionally. I moved to Los Angeles at the age of 19 um without my parents mm-hmm. and um got an agent here and I just thought I was going to be like a superstar. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I'm I'm glad that I didn't have a gigantic fame experience because I also now know more about my own um, psychology and, you know, emotional fragility and various things. I I don't think that I would have, uh, I think that there would have been some fallout if that had happened, if I had hit like big money and big note, you know, big noteworthiness, big fame. So I'm kind of glad in one sense that that didn't happen. But I pursued my acting career until I was in my, yeah, I guess I was, um, I was, I guess I was 24 when I kind of dropped out. It had been really tough. It was feast or famine. There were, you know, I would have like, uh, so I did like a, a I did a, like an ABC sitcom one year. Mm-hmm. And that was the closest I had come at that point to having like a steady job. A regular you know? paycheck. Yeah. yeah, a regular yeah. paycheck and a place where I had to show up. And oh my God, it was like, you know, daytime work hours, not sort of round the clock crazy on location hours. So um we shot at Sunset and Gower Studios, and I did that for a year, and that was exciting. And then there was like 
a year and a half long drought where I didn't work a day. Well, but I was busy all the time with auditions and callbacks and preparing for auditions and driving all over. This was when you had to go pick up your sides from your agency uh, you know, on Sunset yeah, Boulevard. Yeah, there yeah. was no, I don't even think we had a fax machine back then. Um, uh, certainly no email. Um, so, so when you're taking mm, this year off, you know, or not on purpose, but you yeah. have a year of drought. Yeah. What are you living on? How are you funding that? So I was just really frugal and careful with my savings, and I always have been. I was never the kind of actor who would say like, oh, yippee, I just got paid $40,000. I can go out and buy a car. I would say, great, I've got $40,000. That will last me two years. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like stretch it to the to the bone and beyond it. But I was always like – I was never like a materialistic, like label-wearing, you know, kind of ostentatious young person. So I just had my – my own kind of lifestyle. Well, and where do you think you got that from? Was it a learned behavior from a parent? Did you see something in your home that your parent, one of your parents who imparted that to you or a teacher? Or yeah. is it just from being kind of a young professional? I mean, you were actually working when most of us mm-hmm. were, <clears throat> I don't know, going to basketball games and being, mm. you know, silly. My mom was um, was a mature student when I was growing up. So my parents divorced when I was seven. And then I lived with my mother who was um, pursuing a master's degree. And so she was a, you know, a university student. Um, so we lived on no money at all. And times were always really tough. And so I never looked at money as something to um, to take for granted or be wasteful with. Um, so I've, I've just always been really, really, um, just really <laughs> like parsimonious with it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm really careful with it. And I think that that was just my survival um, instincts. And and also I knew the business well enough to know that um, that it was you could never guarantee consistency. And so I was just really careful. And then you know for a while there I had a boyfriend. I had a partner who I lived with, and sometimes he was working more than me, and sometimes I was working more than him. We bought a house together. Bought my first house with him mm-hmm. when I was 21. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was it was really cool. So I, um, I, I just yeah, that was just always my attitude, and also I just had a kind of like, oh, it's up to me. So I'm not gonna put my, I'm not gonna overstand, extend myself, or get myself into a jam because there's no, there's no, um, you know, safety net or backup plan. My parents didn't have means, and so I was just very self sufficient. And I think that's the thing is, <clears throat> you know, when we as parents have children, uh, and we're technically role models because we are because kids by osmosis are watching and they're taking in all that's happening and sometimes you know seeing someone like your mom who is single mom you know kind of going putting herself to university so on and so forth it was tough but it was also I think really good for you to witness because Mm -hmm. you probably are much better with managing your own money than a lot of people who didn't witness something like that where money was freer and, you know, often given without any question. Well, that's the thing. I would look around at my peers and some of them were sort of like, you know, there was just this assumption that if I get into a jam that like something will come along, my parents will come along and save me. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if I need, you know, I would watch my friends setting up their first homes, for example, and like, oh, my, you know, my parents gave me their old car and they bought me all the towels that I need and all the dishes. And I didn't have any of that. So um, uh, yeah, the idea of just sort of taking for granted this idea that like some unseen force will catch me if I stumble. I just never grew up with that. And I don't know whether 
I mean, obviously, um, there's a shadow side to that, too, because uh, it comes with a, a great deal of, you know, anxiety and mm-hmm. a sense of um, like, uh, oh, I'm I'm the only one in the universe who's not allowed to have support. You know, everybody else has support. I don't. I'm not allowed to have that. And so I had a little bit of a complex about that right. for a while, for sure. Right. And the other side of it, which um, uh, is that I, I think that in some ways, what I'm working to overcome now, now that I'm a business owner, um, is uh, it, in, it inculcated in me a little bit of a uh, like small small thinking, mm-hmm. you know. So, if when you're when you are m- counting your pennies, mm-hmm. you're very fixated on the pennies, correct? And so, you know, the idea of being able to like add a zero or two to everything was just very scary. So, like when I went into business um, and had was processing like you know, sending out big invoices and paying big invoices and just like, you know, watching large volumes of money flow through the company. It was scary at first. It's a little bit like, you know, being used to walking at a walking pace and then, and then getting in a fast car on the freeway. It's, it's not inherently, well, it is, that's a bad analogy because of course it is more dangerous, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but just dealing with the numbers, I had to get comfortable with bigger numbers. And that was, that was really a process for me. That was in that time, like that I alluded to where I was conscientiously trying to direct my own, my own kind of path and also cultivate a mindset intentionally that was going to serve me to get me there uh, and getting comfortable with expanding, expanding my capacity for dealing with bigger numbers and playing, yeah, playing and, a bigger game. Was yeah. A and it that. is scary because when you're trying to like control your finances or control your money and you know, you only have a finite amount, which mm-hmm. we all do, but some are smaller than others. It makes you think twice about every single thing you spend money on mm-hmm. and that can be very limiting. So um, yeah, I'd like to explore with you once we get to the that point. <laughs> what you know, what where was the tipping point where you actually felt comfortable in taking on some risk? Because obviously, you know, I say this in my job as a wealth manager: there is no reward without risk. So we talk a lot about risk-adjusted return. How much reward do you want for how much risk you're willing to take? If you're willing to take a lot of risk and, you know, go with the ups and downs with what that is, you might have an outsized reward over time, but there's going to be a fair amount of risk and a fair amount of volatility. So there's somewhere in between, there's a good amount of, you know, there's a the risk adjustment that you can deal with. I'll take this amount of risk to get this kind of reward. But that's a really hard decision to make, especially when you've been living kind of just trying to pay the rent and mm-hmm. you know you to think bigger than that is sometimes just too much for people so i would like to talk about that at some point um as we go through this so all right so you're doing the acting jobs because i think it's really important because you obviously enjoyed being an actress mm-hmm. you wanted to get to the part you know everybody wants to be famous and be a famous actress um but then it sounds like in you you 1996 you're like okay i'm out i'm, I'm not going to do this anymore so what caused you to stop doing this and then move, it sounds like, to the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. to probably London? Um, you know, that's a big move. Like, did you know people there or you just said, that's it, I'm changing my whole life? Yeah, b- both. I, I mostly, it was, um, that was me being adventurous. I just felt like I needed some more adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was that the the acting had been a struggle in that last year before I left LA. Um, there wasn't, you know, the jobs weren't really flowing in. And um, I had a, I had an opportunity to move to England. Um, I had a British passport that my 
father had obtained for me. He was English and English expat. So he said, you know, here's your here's your documents. He gave it to me for my 23rd birthday. I think Mm -hmm. like, here's your passport. You can go live in Europe if you want. So I thought, well, that's kind of exciting. Maybe I should do that. And as I was kind of getting my head wrapped around the, um, (laughs) the, that plan, um, I also met, fell in love with and got pregnant by an Englishman. So in LA or uh, I was, I was, I was, it was on a movie set. Yeah. So um, I was living in L.A. at the time. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) So so that was like, oh, well, this all goes. And again, I'm still at the stage in my life where I'm being blown by the wind. So like, oh, okay, perfect. The universe is telling me I'm supposed to move to London and I'm going to have a baby now. And that's so exciting. And I always wanted that. And how great. Um, And it turned out to be more complicated and tougher than that. But but I did move to England. My daughter was born there. Um, and I kind of tried to revive my acting career on that side. Yeah, I was going to ask you, yeah. were you going to pursue acting in England now? Yeah, you know, I thought about it, but I was also getting super disenchanted with it because I knew at that stage, I had some friends that were a little older than me, a little further down the road, been doing it as long or longer. And I saw that it was an incredibly fickle industry. Yeah. You know, it's like... It doesn't you, matter where you are. It's yeah. just a fickle industry. You, yeah. You can have like five or 10 great years and then you can be a washed up has been, you know, by your 30s. And there's, it was very difficult to sort of go effort in results out. Like mm-hmm. it's just not straight. It's not linear. No. no. So I didn't like it for that. And I also didn't like um, as a feminist myself and as a, you know, person who was struggling with like, as we all, pretty much all are, you know, like self-esteem and body issues. I didn't like the fact that um, acting as a business, like you are your com- own commodity, your business, your body is your business. Right. Partly. I mean, yeah. obviously it's the, you know, the talent and the spirit you bring to your role, but that is packaged in your physical form and um i was just like i was disgusted and disheartened by you know just the blatant um well i used to term body fascism you know just like this is okay that is not lose some weight you know she she should have a bigger boobs you know all these like uh and i just i didn't love it so um so what i decided to do at that stage after my daughter was born was um i got very enchanted by visual arts and i was living near portobello road Mm -hmm. and um, so I did a I did a fine art course and I was all set to go and do um, a fine art degree. Where did you do that? Well, I did um, I did a I did I went to a neighborhood college in North London. I was living you know near the Labrick Grove um, Notting Hill area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I I went to um, I went to like a local local college and did like a three day a week pre foundation course is what it is called. Because so. I went to Heatherly's. Oh, okay. When well, I lived in London, <laughs> I I like to oil paint. I'm a bit of a dilettante, so ah. um, I did a whole course at Heatherly's because. I wanted to learn how to oil paint. I love that. Really yeah, well, which I which I do. Well, I did. I don't have time now to oil oh. paint, but I will again someday. Kim, we need to exchange, yeah, swap stories about that because I have recently started oil painting again in a really big way. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm painting now. But, um, you know, but back then I, I, I wasn't sure which discipline I wanted to go into and what medium I wanted to work in, but I knew that I was really enchanted. But it was the late 90s, the the YBA, the Young British Artist mm-hmm. thing was happening, Sachi and, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. yeah. all the, you know, Tracy Emin and, and yeah, cool Tracy, yeah. cool artists coming on the scene. And I was just so enchanted by all that. And I thought that that was really liberating and exciting. So, so. so let me ask you a question. <clears throat> you've moved to London. You've had your daughter. Mm-hmm. Are you 
living with the father and who's supporting you and how are you making money? Yeah, at this point I'm 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 a uh I'm a housewife. And so point. are you, but you, you not have, married, but yeah. Not married. Yeah, okay, not married, so, yeah. so, so the, you've made this decision together yeah. and you get there. Um and how, um, if I ask too many personal questions you can say like It's okay. I'm getting sorry. better boundaries. I'll be able to say no. Okay. <laughs> Um, so you've known this person, I don't know how Five long. seconds. Okay, yeah. five seconds. You've, got, you've gone to London, and now this dude's going to support you. Yeah. How did you, because I'm always interested about, like, how did you mentally feel about that? Did you feel vulnerable? Yeah. Did you feel like you were secure? I mean, you were bringing a child in, and you were relying on somebody literally to give you your shelter and your food and all this yeah. stuff. So what was what were you thinking? I mean, were you thinking, I got this, this is all good, and this is how it should be, I'm having a kid, he's going to go to work? Or did you feel uncomfortable? Did you feel scared? Yeah, all, all of those things. On the one hand, I felt like I was living like a, a, um, a charmed life. Like it was, I was so fortunate. And I had, you know, we, we lived in a, um, a nice flat in Notting Hill. And he was a very nice area. Yeah, he was a film director. And, um, and I had this baby and all the things needed to raise a baby. You know, I wasn't having to I, I so on the one hand, I have a really complicated re- relationship with um, self-reliance, because as I mentioned, I w- became self-reliant at a super young age. So the idea of like, this is sanctioned by society. Yes, I'm not earning my own money right mm-hmm. now, but it's okay because I have this baby and that makes it like uh, yeah, permissible. That's the social contract. Right, exactly. So I was like, yay, I get to do this now and I've always dreamed of it and, and I'm just going to be... And like, I can oil paint. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just going to be like a, a mom and really, really get into that. Um, unfortunately, it was complicated by all kinds of emotional and relational issues that existed between us. And so it wasn't at all an easy situation and I didn't feel secure and I wasn't actually secure. So it was, it was complex. And by the time she turned three, I was out of my own again and very much out of my own without, you know, uh, so, resources. So when you guys made the decision that you were going to move to London and, you know, you have this joyful mm-hmm. event, a child is being born and there's, that's always a good thing. Um, did you ever talk about money or did you just kind of float into how that was all set up? He was uncomfortable. He had his own issues about money. So and well, he I, is English. Yeah, and well, English and, don't like to talk about money. And I don't even want to. Sorry, yeah, that, that I'm is- making a stereotypical <laughs> comment, but living there, I knew that most people did not ever really like to talk about money head on. Yeah, and his also, you know, he had family stuff around that too. You know, feelings. You know, not all of what he had was came through his efforts either. Yes. So there was like a lot of, um, you know, and then he, anyway, I won't even get into like that, um, but. Uh, uh, but but there was definitely it was not simple. There was lots of tension, um, and then as I said, when I um, by the time she was three, um, I I was like back on my own feet again, or at least out on my own steam. And um, and so at that time, I had to make a decision like not to go to art school. I had been accepted into Chelsea College of Art, really yeah, nice, prestigious. Yeah. You know, I was so mm-hmm. excited to be an artist, but that wasn't a practical. Um, thing I you know I needed now to make 
enough money and to so there was no child. child support or anything from the father yeah there was a little bit but not enough to live on it wasn't like oh this is he's just going to be my my paycheck now it wasn't and you couldn't really go for i know i have a feeling in england if i remember correctly you can't say that like a domestic relationship is tantamount to a marriage palimony doesn't exist yeah it doesn't there, exist yeah. there yeah. so yeah so so i was out on my own and the thing that i chose to do was you know again i was thinking like what can i what can i do what can i do to get like 20 pounds what can i do to get yeah. 100 pounds um i wasn't really thinking in an organized way and again i get i go back to you know when you ask me like what how did you make this decision to have a baby with this person and move there well that was me going <laughs> the universe wants this for me it's going to be fine so i was you know again just going by the seat of my pants um but uh but i did have some sewing skills and i lived right off the portobello road and so um, I knew friends who had market stalls and that was a way that I could have an income that was not, um, you know, that was flexible and, you know, so you were making clothing. Yeah. So then I started, I started off making baby blankets mm-hmm. and, um, colorful baby blankets so that were fleecy and, and had a, a, like a lining on the back, really like the easiest thing you can sew. It's literally a rectangle. Right. <laughs> but I made these baby blankets and they were pretty nice. And then I moved into some clothing and I got really enchanted by like, you know, pattern cutting and, and I was, I, and then I started making and selling clothes, but, um, as, what years were uh, that? So that would have been, uh, that would have been really right around, that was around 2000. That so, was right around the millennium. Yeah, it was exactly so, that. So funny because I was living in London then and um, had kind of gone off my usual track of um, being a lawyer and a banker kind of thing. Um, because, you know, my children were out of, well, they were kind of younger then. They weren't adolescents, but they were about to be adolescents or one of them was. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But I had a, started a fashion company. So when you were doing this, I actually had a store in London on the Fulham Road called Kim Davis London, oh, and I was God. the I was the designer of the clothes. I'm not a trained designer, but um, somehow, and it's a convoluted story for another time. Um, I started designing clothes because I was involved with pashminas, but then from there I started designing clothes, not purposefully so. But one thing led to the other, and I ended up having a fashion company. At exactly the same time with pattern cutters and my own, I had a um, workroom on uh, the Munster Road in Fulham, and then my my store was in Chelsea. Um, but then I got fed up with the retail business and decided only to do wholesale. So my collection was sold at Saks Fifth Avenue in the 10 best stores, and this company that I didn't really ever anticipate. But you and I were actually kind of doing That's the so same thing in the same city. Okay, well, you say the, the same, same thing, but your, your clothes are <laughs> so being sold weird. on it's Saks Fifth Avenue. I was literally making, like, selling well, a handmade T-shirt by hand. No, but the <laughs> thing is, I started off by selling pashminas, and then uh-huh. I had this crazy idea of what you could do with pashminas, which then led to me, like, talking to some person mm-hmm. that I met who worked at Topshop in production just totally random because she went to my hairdresser and one thing led to the other and before i knew it i had like five employees um and i would like just fyi never will i ever do a manufacturing company again (laughs) because it's super stressful it is well and i didn't have employees i had i had what i had was i had um an industrial i had two industrial sewing machines a flat flat a flat sewing machine and a serger in my living room and that is where I made my product. 
<laughs> in my in my one I went at that point we didn't even have a one bedroom apartment we lived in like my daughter and I lived in just like a one room yeah. flat and I it was everything it was her bedroom my bedroom our living room and also my my factory. So, so when you were doing the, because the, I don't, the, I can concluded that as much as I love clothing and I love clothing, mm-hmm. um, and I always have. And when I was when I graduated from Georgetown before I went to law school, one, one, I ultimately decided to go right to law school. But one of the offers I had was to be a buyer at Saks Fifth Avenue in New York City, and this was in 1980. So, you know, the pay was like fourteen thousand dollars a year, and I didn't know anyone in New York, and I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to live on that. And mm-hmm. my father was like, I'm not helping you, so <laughs> decide. You can either go to law school. And I thought, well, I'll go to law school, and then I can go buy a lot of clothes. Uh, so, <laughs> that's one way to love clothes, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of went the roundabout way on that. But mm-hmm. when you were in the midst of this, um, did you, what was your thinking about how long-term you were going to sustain this? How were you going to mm-hmm. grow it? Were you thinking about it as an entrepreneur, and you're like, okay, I'm going to start with blankets, and then I'm going to go on to, I don't know, something else that's kind of related, and then I'll start this product line. What were you thinking? Because... You know, you got this child who support. You know, mm-hmm. you have to support. You got to eat. You got to pay your rent. Um, you know, how were you thinking a portobello market stall was going to translate into some sort of cash flow? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I wasn't. I mean, it was there was a lot of short term thinking there. There was a lot of like, what can I make this Saturday when the market's on? You know, mm-hmm. and so some some weekends it would be three hundred pounds, and I would feel like a rich lady. Yeah. And then other times it would be nothing, and I, you know, I had, that's kind of like owning a store. Yeah, exactly. Someday, <laughs> no one ever comes in. Yeah, yeah. So it was like that. I wasn't. I didn't really have a big plan, but I would say that I kind of felt like um, uh, if I. If I gain traction with my, you know, my 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 brand and my customers, then um, some stallholders had opened like a little shop in Portobello Green mm-hmm. Arcade, which is like a little sort of um, uh, a, a little a little string of boutiques near the market, indoor boutiques. So just sort of taking your stall inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I thought that that might happen, but you know what, Kim? I quickly like I don't know how long I did that for, maybe a year. Um, I quickly realized that this was not going to even put reliably put food on the table um in the short term so um were you feeling fear then or what were you feeling yeah yeah i was um for sure it's hard to parse out all the different fears you know there's like the fear of like roof overhead fear and then there's all like just emotional stuff of like having been through a really really harsh relationship and thinking about like what what am i supposed to be doing with my life and how will i keep myself and my kids safe mm-hmm. um and then um actually luck and serendipity came along and saved me again i have to say that, that you know the universe really has had my back whether or not you know that's the right way to go through life that has happened for me so what happened was um a friend who i had met in an art class um she was you know i was complaining to her and saying like oh i'm i'm not making enough regular money and this is just too hard and you know too uncertain and she said oh maggie you're really good with english you should be an editor i can teach you how and so <laughs> was like okay so and so literally she taught me how that but was- more importantly <laughs> you were open to the idea yeah so yeah, yeah. you might have been a little bit worried about zeros and numbers and things mm-hmm. and smaller thinking in that way but you were kind of open to that idea which i think is awesome and that's why mm-hmm. i wish more people 
would be because sometimes you really do have to pivot like in a big way yeah and i think in the meat and the also uh, yeah so being open to ideas i mean that was a kind of like i said a kind of my hallmark and for better or for worse <laughs> oh, actually this, this <laughs> time it was a good one highly suggestible but the, at the other <laughs> at the other end you know in another part of my kind of brain and and survival instinct i was also starting to get more um, thoughtful and deliberate about those opportunities and ideas. Um, also, I should I should say that while I was having that very difficult, financially difficult patch during the Portobello years, um, I also did a lot of smart things to kind of live as well as I could with all that financial uncertainty. So, you know, I was a member of a housing co-op and I volunteered to be the treasurer so that I could get a discount on my rent. And oh, okay. I started yeah. a I started a, a babysitting. Um, co-op with some friends of mine where, you know, it's like, we, we you know, have like tokens and you share the tokens. It's just a way to get childcare for no money. Um, I was, you know, on the management committee at my daughter's nursery. That wasn't an earning thing, but it was just a kind of like, I was just plugging into the systems and, and, and uh, things around me. I was also very good at having a champagne lifestyle and a beer budget. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, you know, living on the market, um, I would, I would, I would buy, um, vegetables that were about and fruit that was about to spoil, you know, get it for like big box of something yeah. for a pound. Um, but then I would also take a pound and buy like a nice little piece of French cheese. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Like, so you can spoil yourself. It doesn't have yeah. to be, you know, we all have those moments where we're tight for money, but you can still yeah. have some simple pleasures that are nice. So little but you, luxuries. But you are pretty yeah. entrepreneurial, yeah. I think, because you were already kind of negotiating your way through rough waters, but doing things that were you know, maybe not in dollars and cents, but they were ultimately in dollars and cents, you know, adding to your bottom line. Yeah, I was trying to develop my my kind of my skills and abilities to sort of, you know, um, work. I was, I I guess, kind of like trying to, you know, join the mainstream world a little bit and develop some, you know, some skills and resources in that area. So my friend taught me how to edit. She taught me like what it means to be a substantive editor and and a copy editor and how to make marks on paper and how to use Quark Express, which was the page layout tool that everybody was using back then. Um, and as luck would have it, she was going on mat leave or she she had been a freelancer and she was having a baby. So she said, um, oh, well, you know, I get calls all the time for work and I can't take them now. I'm going to take time off and have a baby. So I'll just I'll just recommend you. I'll just. <laughs> so she, Great. she she got me my first freelance gigs. And then lo and behold, I turned out to be really talented at, in that. Um, so um, so then I quickly, you know, managed to you know, just get hired on my own on my own merit. Um and that was when I, I got my first actual job. It was Kim. It was actually my first real job where I had like a company that I worked for and, right. and a paycheck. Um, I was 29 years old. And that must be, I mean, <laughs> did that feel awesome? Yeah, or was, did was, you feel constrained by that? It was great. No, I loved it. It was a magazine company. It was super cool. Everybody was like young and fun. And, and this was in London. It was in London. It was really close to my, you know, my daughter's schools around the corner or, you know, I was still in Notting Hill. The, the, the company was also based there. So I was just like in my neighborhood, in my element. And now I had this cool media job that I just sort of like pushed my way into and turned out to be really good at it. So I, I was at in that company for two and a half years. And in that time, I was elevated. I was promoted to managing editor on this magazine that I was working on. That's awesome. Because I was just, you know what, that was like my work ethic coupled with my innate kind of my, my talent with um with my, oh, the good with the words is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you, you're, cre- you're a creative, right? Yeah. So 
you were creative from day one as mm-hmm. an actress, but that kind of started to filter in through your life in other ways. And that's the thing is like life is not linear for anybody. Nobody. I don't know anybody with a linear life. So these little things that we don't know where they're taking us, you know, they kind of are like a little tributary and it, you know, basing you are deep down a creative person with a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And as a writer or an editor, you know, that is a creative outlet. You know, you have to you have to be creative to be able to look at that stuff and kind of figure out how to make it palatable to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, so you're in London. You are successful. You have a well-paying job. You're a managing editor. I bought it. I bought a flat. You bought. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing, right? So you're like in cloud nine. Yeah. So. At that point, I was doing great, and I was feeling really, really good about having picked myself up, you know, uh, off of my knees. Uh, like after it's, leaving, it's my a very big accomplishment. Yeah, it was really, really tough. Yeah. Um, and then, um, and then the time came to. Um, uh, I, I decided to, I wanted to leave the UK and take my daughter back to Canada when she was eight. So that was 2004. And at that time I had made a bunch of money on the flat that I had, you know, I, it went up 50% yeah. in 18 months. I was yeah. at the tail end of the, of the big lift. And, um, so there's like, I had this, Oh God, Kim, I remember when I picked up the check from the estate agent after I sold that flat and I had this check in my hand for 62,000 pounds and I was shaking. I was shaking. (laughs) I felt like I had to quickly get it into the bank or it would burst into flames or somebody would take it away from me or it would, you know, somehow self-destruct or like I wasn't supposed to have it. Like it was just this sense of like, it was so much money to me then. Yeah, of course. No, (laughs) you're young and you've been, you know, you've done a lot and that's a lot of money. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is. It is. At that stage, it was like a mind blowing amount and it was, but it was, you know, I, I made a lot of really, um, I guess I was always really prudent with my decisions. And so it was a combination of, and you talked earlier about taking risks, taking risks versus making calculated decisions. And I have always been um, a fan of blending both of those things. So most of my risk taking, including buying the flat in London, when, you know, yeah. like when it was Which is always time, a risk. Yeah. And at that time, it was the height of the market. But I looked at it and I ran the numbers and I was like, okay, well... Um, uh, you know, this is what my mortgage payment's going to be. This is what my income is. This is not really, it feels scary. So uh, separating the emotional component of risk taking, which is just like, this is uncertain. This is new from the risk, which is like a, like a logical risk. So on paper, it wasn't really risky at all. Right. And when I could see that, I, that helped me to get over my, the, like the emotional, like the jitters and the nerves, um, and I wanted to also say something else about risk, which is that when I was younger in particular, the feeling of um, uh, I was always better at taking bolder risks and bolder moves, making bolder moves in my life when my back was against the wall. It was a real sort of do or die mm-hmm. survival instinct. And that's not the I mean, that served me well, but it's not the place that I want to be making my life decisions from now. I don't, I don't do that anymore. And so I underwent like a really deliberate process of trying to reorient my mindset so that I wasn't, because what happens when you only do your greatest, you know, your best things out of a sense of like, you know, fear of, 
annihilation. <laughs> or yeah. like, yeah. We, well, what happens if, if that's where you find your strength and your, you know, your greatest ability to act and have agency in your life, then what happens is you subconsciously keep on putting yourself back in peril just because that's your power place. Or I'm saying and, and you, I, I'm talking about no, me. I you think, know. But I think you bring up some, there's a lot of things that I can start talking about off of these. So first of all, people talk a lot about women being risk averse. Mm. Um, so they say women don't like to take risks. And especially when we talk about money, you know, they say, mon- you know, women don't like to invest because they're risk averse. They don't want to take any risk and they want to put all their money in cash. That's not actually totally true, although they, they do have a proclivity to want to hold cash. And <clears throat> I think they're more risk aware. Mm-hmm. But I think to your point about fear is if you have knowledge mm-hmm. and like what you said is you sat down, you did your numbers, and then you had the knowledge that it actually looked right on paper. Mm-hmm. You could you could handle it. It made sense for a lot of reasons. But you had logically sat down calmly and figured it out. And I think when women I talk to want to, for example, in the investment world, just want to hold cash because they're afraid of taking any risk and volatility it's like, well, you don't really have a loss unless you're selling that position on any given day. And if you are in a solid investment and you've done your homework and you're gonna you're a long term investor, if you don't do it, you will run out of money if you mm-hmm. just rely on cash for the rest of your life. And that's maybe you're operating from fear because you just want to see that money in your bank account. But what you don't realize is over five or ten years, that hundred thousand dollars that you have today is worth like fifty. In 10 years, it still looks like 100000 but it can only buy you $50,000 worth of stuff. And so when you sit down and you kind of analyze that numerically and you talk about it, then you, your fear should subside because you're like, okay, right, that makes sense because I'm actually putting myself in a bad position. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important what you said was that you made that decision to buy the flat. That's always scary to put yeah. your, you know, but you did get an asset for it. Yeah. And you figured out that you could... You could sustain the cash flow from what you were making, pay your mortgage, and so on and so forth. And that would eliminate the fear because yeah. you were just being rational. Yeah, exactly. Um, actually, so we, we my, my company, we published a book by um, a, a female um, financial advisor a few, few years. It was right at the beginning, right after we launched. Um, and one of the things that's really stuck out um, uh, from from her book was the the insight that apparently... So women and men, risk aversion, right? Um, apparently, when, as you said, when women have more knowledge, we have much greater appetite for risk. What I, she pointed to some study which really blew my mind, which apparently when men have, they have, they are the most, uh, let's see, was, they're the most confident and most, um, most comfortable with risk when they, when they know less, the more that men learn, the more risk averse they become. They, right. would, they would rather blaze forward uh, with their eyes closed and they're more comfortable taking a big leap of faith doing it that way. But women don't like to do that. We like to know exactly what we're getting into. And then we're equally confident or even yeah. more so. Uh, they, so They definitely punt. I mean, I read a study recently where, um, and this is kind of a similar idea, the HP wanted more women to get involved in certain positions that were, you know, kind of, I'll call them STEM-oriented, you know, mm-hmm. uh, engineering, math, um, computer-type Science, things. technology, technology exactly. <laughs> so, um, and so they found that what they discovered was these qualified women that they thought were qualified for these jobs who they reached out to were reluctant to apply because they were not willing to apply unless they felt they were 100% yeah. 
qualified for those jobs. Men would apply for those jobs when they were only 50 to 60% qualified, and they felt perfectly confident in doing that. And so that's the thing with women. Like, they want it all nicely wrapped up in a bow and because we're we've been trained to be perfectionists and to strive for that well and this is also getting back to like what i was talking about earlier with my my upbringing and not having a safety net i think that i didn't have the luxury of waiting for life to be safe before i moved forward right and so you know just like a, a, a you know a man who might go i'm going to take a chance on myself um i i really did that as a teenager i did that as a 20 something i did that in my 30s where i'm just just go like f it, you know. Yeah. I just I, I'm, I, the only I way you, a, that's the only yeah. way you grow. I mean, exactly, and I'm so 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 glad I did. So I am happy investing in myself, trusting myself, taking a chance, and learning on the job. I've done that a lot. <laughs> so. And learning on the job is really the way for a lot of people to pivot or mm-hmm. start a side hustle, whatever. But I'm not saying people should be irresponsible and just you know uh, don't worry about risk and just take all kinds of chances. Obviously, you know, that would go against everything advice I would give to anybody. But I also think for women with respect to their own confidence, too, they expect perfection from themselves. Mm -hmm. So they don't have the full confidence unless they've ticked all the boxes. And and that's just not realistic. So I always say good is good enough. Mm -hmm. And just be good. Be qualified. Look at all the things. Try to better yourself. Try to do things on the side or educate yourself. But definitely take some chances because if you yeah. don't, you're you're just not going to move ahead. Yeah, you can't grow in that zone. It's the difference between risk risk taking and recklessness. Correct. That's I, very good. I don't want to be reckless. I'm never going to be reckless, but I am going to stretch myself beyond just a bit beyond what I think I'm. You know, really confidently able to do. Um, and then I become more. And now I have done that enough times that I I know that when I'm outside my comfort zone in that way, that it's just a question of of expansion. I just have to expand and grow and, and learn a few more things. Um, and then that has been the way that it works. So I, so, so after I left London, I went, took my daughter back to Vancouver and that's when, um, I went to work at the newspaper there, Mm -hmm. the Vancouver sun. And I started as a, as sort of like a filler in on the, on the news desk as a copy editor, um, and worked across a bunch of departments wherever they needed me. And then eventually, um, after a couple of years, I was promoted to the head of the arts and life department. So then I became basically the features editor for the paper. And that was really exciting for me because I was covering arts and entertainment and that food like and fun. fashion yeah. and all the things, you know, all the things that I really, really, really like get excited about, not, you know, sort of city hall and municipal politics. I know that lots of reporters are really super excited about that, but I loved, you know, the features. Um, and so it was kind of my dream job, but also um, my dream job at the worst possible time for, well, the worst possible time at that point in history. It's probably worse now, but, um, you know, just for the, for journalism as a, as a, an as industry. A, a paper. Yeah. It was tough. Physical paper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or even just as a, as a digital first newsroom, which, you know, we became. Um, but it was, um, it was hard and demoralizing. We had like wave after wave of staff reductions. I lost, you know, I think when I started as the arts and life editor, I had um combination of the in-house reporters and also my regular freelancers had about 20 people filing into my sections. And um, by the time I left, uh, five years later, I was down to just three. Yeah. So like you couldn't really do a newspaper that you're or, you know, a weekend section or whatever that you're super proud of. So the paper was offering rounds of buyout and um, 
And I went through a couple of those while I was there, voluntary staff reductions and um, paying people, you know, uh, to leave their jobs. Um, and this was a unionized news newsroom. So uh, really a lot of a lot of um, a lot of people who thought that they were going to be there for life. Right. Um, and uh, and then after like the third round of it, um, I just thought like, wow, well, I've been here long enough now that I qualify for the maximum, which equated to about a year's worth of salary. Um and I was like, yep, I'm out of here. I I'm going to put my hand up and go for the buyout and take this money and, you know, take this um, this opportunity to start something of my own. And that's when I founded my publishing company, which was then called Life Tree Media. And we were founded in 19, sorry, no, not 19, 20, it was 2013. Um, and, uh, and I started, you know, just working out of my house and, So um, what did publishing. that look like? You had a corp, you made yourself into a corporation. Mm -hmm. It was just you or you and a friend or you and a colleague. How, what did it look like? Well, I incorporated uh, right off the bat and, um, our workforce initially was, yeah, I was doing a lot of the, the kind of the conceptual work and obviously just the building of the business infrastructure. And I was really determined to take it a lot more sort of seriously than I had taken my market stall. And having been in a managerial position at the newsroom for the last five years, I knew how to, I knew how to manage people. I knew how to manage projects, but more importantly, I knew how to manage people. And I had a great database of freelance, you know, um, editors and designers that, that I knew. So I knew that I could make books and I knew that I could run a project, you know, to mm -hmm. see that book to production and beyond. Um, I also, um, I made, uh, I made a, a kind of a, a formed a business relationship with a local publishing company, um, that had, that had distribution and was willing to allow, m to put, m to put my books into their pipeline. So mm -hmm. under my own imprint, but, um, but that was how I gained access to distribution right away. Um, uh, I, I, built the company on the hybrid publishing model um, for the reason that, um, so what that means is it's... Yeah, it's, so tell us. Yeah. So the first thing I, I, I want to uh, understand is, so you had your year's worth of salary, which presumably whatever else you had saved, you're living on that, right, at that point. Yeah. Did you have to make um, an investment into this company? Um, how much, you know, did you think, did you do a business plan? Mm -hmm. Did you know how much you needed to invest in it? Did you do like cash flow projections as to what you thought, how many books you needed to publish to make yourself, yeah. work, you make the whole effort worthwhile? So sort of, I, 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 I didn't really know a lot about cash flow forecasting or a business plan. I knew a little bit about it, but not, I didn't have a great plan in mm -hmm. mind. Um, I did it, um, in a very kind of what was a manageable way for me at the time, which was, it was just me and it was freelancers. And because on the, the hybrid book publishing model is that we're basically a service business. So mm -hmm. we, it's a fee for service with authors. Um, so I basically didn't spend any money until I had a contract signed and then it was all just costs of goods sold. So it was all just like, these right. are the expenses. And I knew that I was... Um, I would, my fees were, um, were well, I mean, adequate you, you, to cover expenses. Yeah, I mean, were, you had yeah. to pay the subcontractors, but mm -hmm. you also had to pay yourself and that part I didn't really do. So in the first okay. year, what I did was I took my money from the Vancouver sun, I put it in a savings account. And then every two weeks on exactly the same schedule that I had been getting a paycheck on, I transferred that exact same amount of money over to my 
current checking account. account. Yeah. yeah. So I just kept myself on salary and just spent my money down like that. And so I didn't take any, I didn't take any um, salary from the business for the first year. And then after a short while after that, I, I had an employee and I, I'd still, you know, we still rely heavily on, um, on subcontractors because they're just so flexible. But so, so who was your first customer? Um, and how did you get them? Yeah. Um, so word of mouth. And actually, my very first customer was um, a guy named Joe Kelly. And he uh, we were just he was just doing concept development at that point, which is just like you went through it with us, mm-hmm. too. Right. Just sit down and like hammer out. How is this book going to be organized and outlined? What's it going to look like? Yeah. Um, and then uh, and then very quickly, I went on to do um, actually it was the the, the female um, um, uh financial advisor um tracy themes is her name and um and she she had me edit her book and then i said well tracy she had already self-published it but i said you know we can we can publish this to the trade and put it under so what's the difference between for those Mm -hmm. because for me i i was like yeah i want to write a book and then Mm -hmm. that's as much as i know about writing a book was that i wanted to write one so what's the difference between self-publishing hybrid publishing and regular publishing. Okay, so I've gotten really good at breaking this down. I hope <laughs> I can mm-hmm. keep it. it. There's a lot of confusion about it. So traditional publishing is the way that it always was, right? When um, what the traditional publisher does is um, they are in the business of developing books as a product, and then they sell that product. Um, where do they get the books from? They get them from authors, and so essentially what they're what they're doing is they're licensing the right to turn your material that's in your head or, you know, will eventually be on a computer file, but that raw material to productize it and turn it into a book that then is their product that they will then go and sell. And in exchange for your contribution to that, they pay you what is essentially a licensing fee, but in the form of a royalty. Right. So that's the traditional. So you get money up front You get, well, you, that if you get an advance, the advance is an, it's, it's an early payment against future royalties is okay. what the advance is. But they're basically, you know, buying the right to take your, um, your intellectual property and turn it into a product that they then own. So that is the traditional paradigm. In, and, and for that, um, part, so uh, also important to note, part of the publishers really um, kind of core defining activities are, yes, the development of the work into a book, but also um, taking it to market. So Mm -hmm. the the traditional publisher, marketing, they either have it in house or they work with a third party distributor, but they have the access to the the book trade, which is what we call, you know, where books are sold in retail um, setting. So that's the, that's the traditional publishers kind of like um, universe of, of activities. Um, then came self-publishing, which, um, took away the need to be in stores by, you know, and when did that pop up? Well, well, I don't know. So like kind of early 2000s was like when Amazon was sort of beginning its thing. And then it, I I don't really know when, when self-publishing became, I mean, it was, it was breaking open around 2010 was around it, was it maybe related to the fact that people weren't going to traditional bookstores no, anymore no it wasn't that or, it wasn't it wasn't because of a lack of interest in that it was literally because um, digital platforms allowed people to it was print on demand technology and ebooks right. that made it happen right before okay, that yeah. you had to go and buy a book that someone had printed and shipped to a store but with these digital um, delivery systems consumers are able to buy you know, a book uh, that is directly, that has never been printed. So print on demand means, you know, if I go to Amazon or or somewhere else and buy um, a book that, you know, it hasn't been 
printed. It's not sitting in a warehouse. It's just a digital you file. You just download it. And- well, you basically, you know, you hit purchase. I want a physical copy of it. That goes to the print-on-demand facility. And oh. it's almost like it's almost like printing out a document at your home printer, but what you're printing out is a book, and then they ship it to you okay. straight from the efficient. So yeah, so it's literally printed on demand. So when print-on-demand and ebook technology was on the rise and Amazon found a way to make those services available directly to authors, that was the beginning of self-publishing. So a lot of people were interested in doing that. What that means then, if you're self-publishing your book, you have to um, make all of the decisions that the publisher would normally make. Now, can you make them to the same professionalism? You know, probably not unless you come from that, you know, unless that's your your practice. Um, You have to finance it. So if you are going to get an editor or a designer or anyone to help you, you are the producer of that work, basically. You're the investor. And that also means that you... Um, will get, you know, you're the one who gets paid when it is sold. So that is self-publishing. But then there's this gap in between is people were like, okay, I like the power and control of the self-publishing thing. I want to have all that, those, you know, the keep the sales myself. Um, I want to be able to say when it happens and be in control of the, you know, the process and all that. I don't want to have to wait for a traditional publisher to choose me. So I like self-publishing, but I I want my book to be a real book. I want it to be well professionally developed, and I want it to be available in stores because I have a serious aspiration as an author. So I don't (laughs) want to be sort of sidelined in this kind of like, you know, um, this sort of like – the in the 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 sort of I want to be in the A game, right? I'm in the main in the main in the main game. So, so enter hybrid publishing, and that's basically what my company does, which is we. We make books on a fee-for-service basis, and then we put them into the market. Um, our authors are the financiers of those books, um, and they also make more of the money from sales. So let me ask you a question, um, because you said in the hybrid that the author is putting money into it just like in the self-publishing mm-hmm. uh, venue. Is there a cost differential? Do you spend more self-publishing than you do hybrid publishing, or well, do you spend more hybrid publishing yeah so it's not kind of a false question i understand because it's when you're self-publishing you're not getting any guidance so Mm -hmm. in hybrid publishing and i know from my experience with you you know like you're helping me to look at things in a way that if i was just off on my own doing this i probably it wouldn't be as nuanced for lack of a better yeah well it would be it would be an amateur effort even if it yes. was a very well executed amateur effort you know you're not a book publishing professional and most authors right. are not so you know um we work with really excellent people and so so the the short answer the short answer to your question is hybrid publishing is usually more expensive than tradition than than um than self publishing but if you look at even self publishing there's a really wide range so if you think about like um uh there's DIY self-publishing, which is just super scrappy, and it's like I'm going to invest zero dollars and do everything myself, and that is possible. You can literally self-publish a book for no money at all. And so, if you do that, but it's going to look like that. Can you put that book? Can a person who self-publishes put that book on Amazon? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Amazon, can just- Amazon is full of terrible books. I mean, it really, really is. Like the the self-publishing universe is 
is really, really, um, because there's literally no quality control and like there's no, nothing. Yeah. So anybody can publish anything. You can literally just, you know, type gibberish into a document and, and upload it on and, Amazon and pick a price for it yeah, and hope and, for the best. Yeah. Nobody's going to buy it. You know, it's not going to do anything, but that, that, that space is extremely cluttered with amateur, you know, things would <laughs> not even really necessarily in every case call them books, you know, but documents that people have uploaded. And you see some terrible, like laughable covers and, you know, yeah, really, because yeah. you, who does the artwork and, you know, they're, yeah. and they look more like pamphlets. Yeah. But on the other books. hand, there are companies that will do assisted self-publishing and our company also offers that as a, as one of our programs. And that is for someone who doesn't want to go into retail stores. They don't want to do a print run distribution. They just want to, you know, have their book on Amazon or in digital um, format. Um, but they want it to be professionally produced. And there are lots of companies that have sprung up to help people do that too. That's also not cheap. And, you know, as with any professional service, the, there's just this huge, you know, kind of range of quality providers and right. a huge range of, 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 of costs and, and, and fees associated. So you can find somebody, you know, to, there it's a kind of wild westy out there right now like you can you know you can find a designer on fiverr to do your cover for 150 bucks it's going to look like it's going to look like, like 150, 150 bucks, bucks. Yeah. Right. yeah um you know we work strictly with professionals and all of the designers and editors on our team have built their careers in the traditional publishing industry so they're really and the, the reason that that makes a difference, it's not just sort of legacy kind of halo effect although that's kind of probably part of it you know they've been they've spent their time developing their craft in a professional environment and not just like serving clients who don't know good from bad, you know, right, that's so right. different. But the other reason that it matters is because if we're doing print run distribution, if we're printing a quantity of books and putting them out to stores, you, you, you need to be aware of consumer appetites. You need to be aware of, um, of trends. You need to be aware of like what the, what what the what the market expects from that book in order to be competitive you can't just sort of say well i'm happy with it just stick it out there so I, you in know. in your group in your company you kind of are also doing market research mm -hmm. i would say right so you know like for example with my book where is it going to fit into the market? Who's going to buy the book? Positioning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. How is this book positioned? How is it different from the other ones on the shelf? Why would any consumer, what would move a consumer to pick this title up instead of the other ones that are already available in that space? And, you know, in your case, you know, it has to do with, with your personality. It has to do with, um, you know, there's a modernity to your approach and to your voice. Um, and, um, you know, we, we've had conversations about, you know, other um, books about finance for women that and how this one will be different um uh so so it's very much about kind of like finding a lot of what we do is like finding what it's like that sweet spot between okay here's what is unique and different about this this human about this person and the things that they know but also what is sort of missing what what have not we seen in right in, right in the and market. so when you're so, not when you're self-publishing you can't really do that because you're just busy writing a book and then you print it out and yeah that's the end of it yeah and people they you know like some folks do a really great job self-publishing and really honestly most don't because they just don't you know they're they're not coming at it from a professional a body of knowledge and you know they're writing or or making decisions 
that seem good to them, um, but that's not the same thing as developing a product for market. What part of the – so if you could break up the market between traditional publishing, self-publishing, and hybrid publishing, like what percentage of the market is hybrid publishing right now really it's a kind of new mm, concept yeah it's i think yeah it's 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 definitely it's a sliver it's a really small sliver right now and that is i think because um it's an emerging um niche in terms of the um the business model and um frankly it's it's difficult to set up as a hybrid publisher because one of the key defining features um i'm on the uh, one of the key defining features is that you must have you must have distribution into stores, and that is hard to get when you are brand new and don't have a track record. Um, I was going to say I'm I'm on the board of directors at the Independent Book Publishers Association and on their advocacy committee. Um, and a couple of years ago, I was part of the group on the advocacy committee that drafted a set of criteria for bona fide hybrid publishers, trying to get the industry on the same page in terms of like what does this mean mm-hmm. and who is and isn't a hybrid publisher. There are some firms out there that describe themselves that way, but in fact, they don't have distribution. So really, all they're doing is developing your book and putting it on Amazon, which you know they're not you adding. You can do that yourself. Yeah, you can do it yourself. Ways. They're yeah. not adding value in terms of like market access or, or even you know again that um, being. Um, competitive with other titles that are that traditionally published and put into stores. So when a hybrid book goes into a traditional bookstore, say like mm-hmm. Barnes and Noble or whatever, and how do they fare compared to traditionally published books? And I don't know if you know the answer to that, but it's kind of interesting to me. It's a level playing field, I think. The, the, on that, on so the consumer doesn't really know; they just no, see a book. Of right? course, yeah. So what matters there is how well the author is. Um, uh, getting the word out there to their own audience and like how what are you doing to I mean this is where social media comes in and all of the mm-hmm. you know the the um you know the podcasting all the stuff that you've been doing to kind of build awareness of yourself and your thought leadership and your expertise those are the things that make a difference because people want to go you know if they you, you there are two levels to there are two levels to selling a book the first level is to sell it to the retailer and persuade that retailer to stock it the second level is that it has to sell through to the customer and so creating consumer awareness and customer demand um is really largely in in today's media climate it's really driven by the author and that is true even if it you know a traditional publisher penguin random house is there, you know, publisher or whatever, it's still, it comes down to the author, their platform, their ability to attract a tribe and connect with that tribe Mm -hmm. and to have people know and expect their book. Um, That is what drives book sales in every market now. Um, So in, so it really, it really, I mean, and to have a traditionally published book doesn't necessarily mean it's going to sell well. Um, There are lots and lots and lots of them that tank every single year. The difference is that you're in the store, you're in the trade, your your sales are counted by those. But do they not have databases. a budget like to promote the author? Mm-hmm. Depends these days. Yeah. So um, traditional publishers are getting much more um, risk averse in terms of what they will invest in. And so, yeah, they'll have like a huge marketing budget for their stars. And then most newcomers, especially if you can get a deal at all, the author's expected usually to, you know, foot the bill and do do their mm-hmm. own marketing or sometimes high. there might be like a press release or a limited, you know, kind of a campaign around it. But um, 
Uh, but the hustle is always going to come back to the author. There seems to be so many people that write books now. Like every mm-hmm. time I turn around or I go on Amazon or I'm just looking around, just everybody seems to have written a book. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> for a minute there, I was like, well, I'm, you know, should I even write a book? Because like everyone says, well, I've written a book. But then mm-hmm. I thought, no, I really want to write a book because I have things I think are meaningful to say and share with women about how they can, you know, become financially in control of their futures. And hopefully it'll be a philosophical slash handbook tool book kind of thing for them, toolbox for them to follow. Yeah, like more people are writing but I books do than ever like before. It's <laughs> books are a dime a dozen. Well, they are. It's a very, very, very crowded space. It's hard to kind of like stand out in from the pack, but especially in the self-published world where, like I said, there's just like something like 200,000 books a year are pub- self-published. Unbelievable. It's kind of ridiculous. But you know what, Kim? People are still reading books. Which is great. They're reading books more than ever. You know, that that, that, that is still very active, very, very much happening, especially, um, you know, with new formats like audiobooks. I'm a recent convert to audiobooks. I love them. Um, and and I think our definition of what a book is, is breaking down, uh, you know, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be bound on paper and bought in a store. But what, you know, we still, we need to learn from each other. Um, and books are the best way that I know to transfer knowledge and wisdom or inspiration from one person's head to another's. Maybe that's just, you know, my milieu. It's the world I come from and how I think and feel. But I know that in my life, everything, especially as this kind of a self-taught person who kind of didn't really go through traditional educational routes, um, books have been there for me every step along the way when I needed to learn something or I was grappling with an emotional issue or, you know, some, whether it's internal, external, practical, um, or, or spiritual, anything, it, it comes from a book, you know, that's really where, that's really where I have turned to for sources of wisdom and information since forever. And that hasn't changed. People are still, you know, wanting to have a a deeper understanding than you can get in a blog post. Like, yeah, we're looking at YouTube videos and we're reading blog posts, but when you sit down with a book, those are sound bites. Yeah, with a book, a book is like an eight to 15 hour investment to read a book, you know, it will take that much of your time to read that book, or, you know, longer, sometimes it'll be spread out over months or even longer. Um, But you're really getting a deeper piece of that author's brain than you can get in a different format. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I love to read, I've always been a voracious reader. um, And I, you know, it's also when I'm trying to distract myself, you know, if I'm reading a really good book, I can reopen the book and, you know, kind of think about the book for a while and it takes my mind off my problems Yeah. Um, instead of watching a television show. You know, I think the richness of language is still a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. and um, it may be getting, you know, lost as time goes on. I don't know. But I do think the richness of language is important. So let me ask you a question. You relaunched your company lately, Mm -hmm. uh, recently from... Life Tree Media to Wonderwell. Mm-hmm. So why did you do that? What was the motivation for that? Yeah, a couple of things. On the one hand, um, we I really uh, I love the, I love the name Life Tree. Uh, you know, it really speaks to um, this sort of ongoing cycle of life, which I you know kind of equate with that um, that uh, the the fruits of wisdom that mm-hmm. are passed on and you know kind of eternal and self generating, um, self propagating, um, but. What I wanted was a brand that felt kind of grander um, and more expansive and taking us a little bit out of maybe the lifestyle and, um, yeah, just out of the lifestyle space into some, you know, bigger ideas, um, 
So so we rebranded as Wonderwell. There were some like mm, t- reasons to do with my you know leaving Canada and coming down to the U.S. I I have I've left Vancouver and I'm now in Los Angeles full time. So I ha- I literally had to set up a new corporation in in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and then looking at like you know trademark and and all of that. So there were a bunch of like kind of other administrative and legal reasons for doing it. Um, but really Wonderwell, you know, our tagline is big ideas for a better world. And that's, um, that's, that's what we're going forward with. That's what we're And did you get any kind of counsel on that? Or was this something you just popped out of your own head? Yeah, no, I'm done with popping things out of my own head. (laughs) I now know how to find good advisors and collaborators. And so, yeah, I worked with an awesome, uh, woman named Michelle Heath. She has a company called Growth Street and she is basically a fractional CMO. So she worked with me um, on sort of developing the brand and the brand promise. And, and uh, yeah, I was done kind of making things in my living room all alone. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, well, that's it. And you need someone and because there's a whole a psychology to these names, mm-hmm. uh, apparently. So, um, well, I don't I think we're coming up on time. Um, but I did want to ask you just to kind of, um, you know, sum up because we didn't really touch upon you as a single mother and how that affected your trajectory, the responsibility of raising a child by yourself while you were trying to do all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in a few words, and I know it's a pretty big question to ask you to answer in a few words. um, How did that, how did that work? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that, um, I think that it put um, steel in my backbone in a way that I don't know that I would have cultivated to the same degree if it was just me just sort of floating along through life. Um, But I had this child that I had to not only provide for, but also create, um, you know, a a home and an emotional home for. Um, And I, and I, and I could not fail. Failure was just not an option. I could not, I could not have um, a chaotic and, um, uh, I, I couldn't have a chaotic life. <laughs> I couldn't. Um, I, so, yeah, she she really um, also, you know, having a person rely on you means that, yeah, I was just, I was just, I was going to, she forced me to think bigger and take those bigger risks. Um, and uh, so I, I think in all those, and also just gave structure to my life. I right, think right. Being yeah, a, yeah. a creative person and a young mom, um, I could easily have been, you know, kind of a sleep all day type of yeah, person of or being fighting against, you know, the, all those things. But, you know, when you've got to get your child up and take her to nursery and you've got to have dinner on the table. It, so providing structure for her also caused me to provide structure for myself at a very unstable time. And that was empowering. And does she, how did, does she have any thoughts on uh, your trajectory? Oh, Kim, I'm her hero. You're a good role model, right? I mean, uh, well, I, I mean, and I'm going to want to paint myself as an, I don't want to paint myself as some kind of like amazing mother because I certainly made all Well, it sounds like you were no, pretty I, good mother indeed. You I was, handled a lot. I was trying, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm actually sensing her rolling my eyes when I talk about, you know, oh, I don't want to have a chaotic life because our life was pretty chaotic and, and she, and she would be the first to say that. Um, but, um, but I have shown her, I think. Actually, I just saw her last week. She was she just went back to England, you know, yesterday, two days before. So she's still she living in England. She okay. li- yeah, she's st- she went to university there, and um, and now she still lives there. Um, she's now twenty four. Uh, but we talked about this when she was out here for Thanksgiving, and um, 
and I know that I, th- I think that I taught her courage and I think that um, I, I'm still a resource for her for sure and am um, always like trying to help her cultivate and develop and find and build her own pathways to resources um, and inner resources. So um, yeah, no, she's, she's impressed with my scrappiness, but, uh, <laughs> but I, she's certainly not impressed with all of me. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, that's just part of being a mom, right? You're not going to yeah. get the, the whole, the whole trifecta. It doesn't work, you know? So I'm just happy my kids think moderately positive thoughts about me. Exactly. Um, and, and that also can vacillate from moment to moment, but, um, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you today, I think if people are interested in about the publishing world, they mm-hmm. learn some information and also about uh, the ongoing conversation we hear, have here at the Fiscal Feminist about um, navigating through life, making changes, not living from a place of fear, but being informed and taking risks in an informed way, having some faith, believing in yourself having confidence, not expecting to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. We all have to make mistakes. We learn more from our mistakes than we do from Mm -hmm. sometimes our successes. Um, And I just think it's been a pleasure to hear your story because it really is very interesting. I mean, just, you know, the fact that you were even an actress and a child actress and in movies and things and then then realized that wasn't, you know, going to be the life path. Um, That must have been, you know, kind of scary, disappointing and interesting as to what should you should do next so what a great rich life a tapestry indeed so maggie thank you for again for joining us and if anybody has any questions about you know publishing or whatever uh you guys can reach out to me and i can give you uh kim at the fiscal com because i know a lot of people might be interested in writing a book just like i am um thank you so much everyone for listening uh please like us on your podcast service um i'm never exactly sure how you do that but i know you guys probably know how to do that and i look forward to the next time bye the bonkin group is registered with hightower securities llc member finra and sipc and with hightower advisors llc a registered investment advisor with the sec securities are offered through hightower securities llc advisory services are offered through hightower advisors llc this is not an offer to buy or sell securities no investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. 
This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.